This is Chip, wearing green. This is Erica, wearing purple. And this is Shannon. You're both out of your minds. And you're listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Episode 25, The Geometry of Shadows. Well, we're over and done with uh, our sort of three-part reintroduction of the series, our resetting of the status quo, and we are about to start what is a rather more normal episode, I guess, of Babylon 5, The Geometry of Shadows. With me, as always, are Erica and Shannon, my co-hosts. And uh, before we get started, if you're listening to this in something approaching real time, we recently posted our first ever extra edition of the podcast that had nothing to do with song and dance. Uh, We interviewed Mojo, one of the uh, senior animators at Foundation Imaging for the first three seasons of Babylon 5. And I, if you haven't heard it yet, I hope you'll check it out. Yeah, it was it was great. It was great fun to listen to that. Um, not just because it's kind of neat to listen to something that I, you know, it was a audio guide to Babylon 5 that was completely new to me. But in addition to that, it was also a really good interview. Excellent job, Chip. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And thank you very much to Mojo for participating. And we are working on trying to line up some other interviews along the way as well. If we can't actually uh, ramp up our podcasting uh proliferation to do an episode every week, which I think we'd love to do. We just don't have the time to. We can at least try to insert a few extras along the way. Um, So nothing's lined up yet, but we're working on it. So stick with us, please. Uh, Erica and Shannon, uh, before we get into the recaps of uh, the episodes, um, the Technomage Elric in The Geometry of Shadows quotes the Lord of the Rings saying, Wizards are subtle and quick to anger. I think, in contrast, this episode was not subtle, but was quick to the one-liner. Um, what did you? Th- what were your initial reactions to The Geometry of Shadows after um, three really heavy arc episodes? I would say a much-needed break. I think, you know, it helps to have ups and downs, shifts in tone, and an episode like this is perfectly fine to lighten things up, um, give everybody a chance to catch their breaths, that sort of thing. But, you know, having said that, I still think there's a lot to chew on as far as this having implications for the story arc down the line that we'll talk about after the jump gate. You know, I agree with everything Shannon just said in theory. However... (laughs) (laughs) Um, for me, it just, it really felt like a momentum killer. I, I don't know. I guess I was just so carried along on this wave of the last three sort of, you know, momentous arc heavy episodes that I was just, you know, in the back of my mind expecting to move all of that stuff forward even more and get some more answers. And we didn't. We totally took a, a sidestep and, and went for something light. And while I feel it was all very well done, um, I think, or maybe if somebody had just said ahead of time, hey, by the way, this is just, you know, a lighter episode. Don't expect too much from it. I think it was just my expectations getting in the way of enjoying it as much as I could have because it really did feel like it slowed down a little. Let's let's dig into it and let's see what we can find out of it. And maybe, just maybe, we can change your mind again, Erica. 
Um, what you need to know, dear listener, if this happens to be your first ever episode of Babylon 5, the space station deep in neutral territory is the diplomatic center of the galaxy. Five major governments and a number of smaller races try to work out their differences on the best days or exploit and bully each other on the worst. Among these are the humans, led by new Captain John Sheridan, his second-in-command Susan Ivanova, and Security Chief Michael Garibaldi, who's been on leave ever since being shot by his second-in-command. We also have the Centauri, a once-proud, decadent society, represented by Ambassador Londo Malari, whose star is on the rise ever since making a deal with a mysterious, powerful faction. And then there are the Drazi, of whom we know little other than that they tend to have bad tempers. This brings us to the Geometry of Shadows. A group of so-called technomages, semi-mystic computer hackers, is gathering on Babylon 5 to form a one-way tour group. They're leaving for Beyond the Rim, never to come back, and they're not interested in talking about it. Londo craves the historic respect an audience with a technomage would confer, so he seeks a meeting with their leader, Elric. He's not wasting time with Londo, whose every effort is rebuffed with increasingly embarrassing effect. In a final conversation, when all the cameras are presumably elsewhere, Elric explains his contempt for Londo. You are touched by darkness, Ambassador. I see it as a blemish that will grow with time. I could warn you, of course, but you would not listen. I could kill you, but someone would take your place. So I do the only thing I can. I go. Meanwhile, in our official Star Trek-like B-plot, Sheridan has pushed through a promotion for Commander Ivanova and immediately tasks her with ending the factional brawling among the Drazi that breaks out every five years. Ivanova's at a loss when she discovers that the fight is literally irrational. The sides are randomly selected and inadvertently ends the fight when she takes the badge of command away from one leader. That's not before she gets herself captured, giving Michael Garibaldi, who's suspicious of their new captain, a chance to feel useful and gallant again. He's back in uniform, and that's our episode, which almost feels to me like an episode from season one. Uh, and we made a big deal about how all of a sudden this feels like real Babylon 5. Does this feel like unreal Babylon 5? I think it still feels real. I just, I don't feel like it's as meaty as, as those previous episodes were that we just saw. So I do, I do feel like something was set in motion in those stories. And like Shannon said, like there are hints of things that are related to that. You know, you get scenes with, with Londo talking to um, Lord Rifa who comes to visit him and Rifa wants to know, you know, how did you pull all of this off? And, you know, Londo's not talking mostly because Londo doesn't actually know. But so, you know, it's like there are little tastes of, of that sort of stuff scattered around, but there's not enough of it for it to, to feel like a biggie. It's, it's just sort of a, a, I don't know, a light appetizer or something. Yeah, I, I again, I think it's something of a break. Um, things are still moving forward. They've just slowed down a bit uh, so that we can change gears and upshift again uh, a few episodes down the line. Um, but it still works for me overall. We get some advancement of Ivanova's character, uh, the fact that she gets a promotion and she is thrust into uh, more of that leadership position that she really didn't seem to want a couple episodes ago. She was so relieved when Captain Sheridan arrived. And we have, of course, uh, more of Londo's machinations going on as he tries to get some kind of visible support for doing the thing that ultimately deep in his heart, he he's not sure about. Yeah. So I, th I think there's, we're, we're getting character movement a bit more 
in this episode where we were getting plot and character movement in the previous ones. It's interesting that you'd say that because I think one of the things that I noticed about this episode, and I'm not entirely sure whether it's the characters or uh, the scriptwriter JMS and the director sort of trying to feel their way around, but Sheridan and Londo in particular feel like they're trying to adjust to new roles. And in Sheridan's case, I'm not sure whether that's Sheridan or Boxleitner. Uh, and what I mean by that is in the previous episodes, Londo has been kind of nervous about his current status um, and what he's getting himself into. He's intoxicated by it, but he's a little gun shy. This time around, he's got no hesitation in making his deal with Lord Reefa. Um, he's got a bit of a swagger, and then he's almost um, he's almost a comic villain in trying to make his deal with uh, get his audience recorded with the, the, the techno mage and things like that. He's almost reminds me of a comic book supervillain having a bad day. Um, meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, Sheridan in this episode, Sheridan feels a, an awful lot like Sinclair to me. He doesn't have a whole lot to do with the with the narrative thrust of the story, but the conversation that he has with Elric and the sort of closing soliloquy at the end, you know, he's doing it Bruce Boxleitner style, but I could very easily see O'Hare doing the same sorts of things. So what do you two think about uh, Sheridan and uh, Londo in this story? Um, do they feel like the characters that we've come to know so far? You know, the Londo thing didn't, it didn't actually, I didn't notice it in the same way that you did. Uh, because I, I felt like, you know, Londo, he may be sort of a, you know, washed up Republican kind of down on his luck, but he has been in the system for a long time. So he knows how to handle himself in, you know, meetings and situations like that. So my thought about his uh, reaction with Lord Rifa was that, you know, he, he knew that by taking these, these steps with, you know, Mr. Space Mob, that he was going to be getting some sort of reaction from back home. So I have a feeling he's been sort of stealing himself for it and preparing himself for whatever kind of reaction he would have um, all along. So he'd be ready for it when it came. And I think that this is it, or at least this is a part of it. So Rifa shows up and, you know, tells him that there are, there are things going on in the, the Mbari government and would you like to be a part of it? And I believe that he's already made his decision before this because it's, you know, Lalando's, you know, he may be a fool sometimes, but he's not stupid. So he knows which way the wind is, is blowing. So he probably had already decided that he does want to jump on the uh, on the train of, of change to, to get himself a better position. So I don't I don't think that his that him hesitating would have necessarily been any better than him not hesitating in this case. He, he says yes immediately. And then because he's made that choice, he's, he's made this decision to move forward, I, then I'm fine with seeing him act without thinking about it again later. He just, you know, he sees something. It's almost like he sees something shiny. Ooh, techno mages. This is, this is one concrete thing that I could do that could move this, this whole idea forward. So I'm going to go after that. So he's just like, you know, a cat chasing something shiny and he just, he just wants to get it. So I was okay <laughs> with, with the Londo thing. Shannon, what did you think? Pretty much uh, agree for the most part. I still, there's a couple of times when Peter Jurisic gives an expression that still makes me think that he's testing this bridge as he keeps going. It's like, you know, foot, foot by foot, I'm just going to test this next plank and make sure it doesn't break on me before I advance. Um, yes, he is committing to the side that looks like has uh, things that will be happening to it. 
But I have to wonder if the emperor, if, if somebody representing the emperor had been there first, what would Londo have said to that person? I mean, it may be just a matter of, you know, who, who's, who can he draw to, to himself now that he has apparently solved the Quadrant 37 problem? Who's, who's going to come and uh, approach him first? I don't know. Um, on the other hand, uh, when Chip brought up uh, Sheridan, I see what Chip's saying that the role Sheridan plays is very much um, the same kind of role that uh, Sinclair would play in in the episode if it if it was uh, roles reversed. But I still think Sheridan and Boxleitner are you know starting to put their stamp on everything. Uh, the first thing he does, he goes after a promotion for Ivanova. Sinclair would probably have done this at some point, uh, although... If with, Sinclair had ever been promoted to captain. Right, yeah, Sinclair would have to be promoted first, but Sheridan has the opportunity to do this, and he offers it, and, you know, presents it in, you know, of course, you know, he's going to make it a surprise for her. He's going to deadpan about it all and and totally shock her. And I love Ivanova's face in that scene as after he leaves, and she, she you know, she drinks her orange juice, and then she thinks, oh, God, what have I gotten myself into? Uh, that was a lovely little bit. Another thing that differentiates for me a bit is uh, Sheridan going to see Garibaldi and, you know, laying it all out. I want you back. I will trust you if you want to come back and take this and take your job again. We need you. Sinclair, of course, having known Garibaldi for a very long time, that conversation would have been really different if Sinclair had been in the role and walked in and seen Garibaldi popping the charge on his gun over and over and over again as he contemplates um, quite possibly suicide. That's I think that was a deliberate impression, uh, not a very strong one, but I think it was there. No, no, I thought that was skillfully underplayed, but I think mm-hmm. it's there. Yeah. So I, I see what you're saying about the role the captain's taking, but I still think that this is Sheridan starting to settle in and... Uh, figure out what's going on and how after, he's going to handle it. After a bit of a rough start, I, I could not figure out why he was shouting at Elric. Yeah, that that came out of nowhere, it seemed for me. Hmm. Although it does um, help later on after Elric says, you know, Londo's been using you and blows up the camera and things like that. And that gives them some place to go to um, afterward, okay, we're we're both mad at the same guy. You want to go for a walk? You know, that's. I guess that gives the mutual character arc a little bit of a place to go, maybe. But it does it does strike me as Sheridan not yet fully inhabiting the kind of role that Sinclair would have, um, mm-hmm. although he comes to at the end because he is he is new at this. Yeah, I you know I think I do agree that it's that it's very he's very Sheridan Sheridan is very Sinclair like in this episode but I I definitely agree with Shannon that it's he's doing sort of the same things but because he's new to the station it plays out differently I think even his scene with Ivanova yes uh, Sinclair would have you know given her the promotion if he had had the opportunity but I think the way that Sheridan sort of you know, it's it's like he's sort of patient with her because she's going through a learning process, and I, I feel like it would have it would have been somehow different their interaction if it would have been Sinclair. Um, you know, maybe he would have actually stepped in and tried to help her more as opposed to Sheridan just being like, "Nope, you got this. I trust you. You're on your own." <laughs> yeah, um, it's it's overly convenient for the show, but I think it's so helpful that we established that they had a previous relationship. They knew each other. They can get to that sort of trusting point. Um, so mm-hmm. it really helps. It really helps that happen. 
So, speaking of, of Ivanova, how did you all feel about the B-plot and the green versus purple Drazi stuff? It is one of the pieces of Babylon 5 fan lore. People <laughs> love this B-plot scene sort of in the abstract. But when you're watching it, when you're when you're watching this part of the story at this point in the storyline, does it work? Is it funny? Is it strong? And does it serve Ivanova well? I was honestly kind of uncomfortable with it. I mean, first of all, your your mention of Star Trek at the beginning, yes, this B plot felt so Star Trek to me. On the other hand, I just I don't know how I feel about Ivanova just sort of, you know, callously meddling in the affairs of this other race. Like, yes, I understand she needed to find a solution, but when she just walks up to the guy and takes the scarf off and puts it on the other guy and that starts a fight, yeah, ha ha, it's played for laughs, it's supposed to be funny, but to me that just felt like, you know, you know, walking up to a, you know, a, a, a woman with a head covering or something like that and just pulling it off. Like that's not okay. So I had I had some real trouble with this with this B plot just because it seemed to be you know, and, and yes, this is not a religious thing. It, they, they make it very clear that it's completely arbitrary, but it still means a lot to them as a people. So, I mean, at the end, the fact that they were pretty much okay with it when she just took over because of their silly rules, I, that, that softened it for me. But it's still, I still felt a little icky kind of uh, watching it most of the way through. It's over the top. And I think JMS deliberately made it over the top. He he mm-hmm. wanted a plot thread after, you know, three heavy arcs. He wanted something light and done totally for comic play. Overall, you know, if you don't think about it too deeply, it works. What I particularly like you said, the ending tends to sell it. The the fact that the mm-hmm. the, the question as to whether Ivanova can can take the green scarf and and be leader um, is stuck in rules committee. And and oh my God, the, the guy under that drowsy makeup just does such a funny funny turn uh, he, that, explaining that. that. I, interrupting that, I love that guy. That entire scene, that guy's performance. He starts out nasty, talking about spacing the uh, other drowsy and. You know, how long can you wait? Can you can you leap them in there for the for the entire next year? And he's just sort of nasty. And then when she takes the sash from him and he's just like, <gasps> and then it, it, he's a sh- he's bashful and ashamed about the rules changes being locked in committee. I love that guy's performance. It's just nuts. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and the fact that she can find this. You know, it's all arbitrary. She's going to run with it. She's going to go dye all of their sashes green and they are purple or whichever color it is that they need to be. And as far as the station is concerned, problem solved. I would love to have seen a story or, you know, a fanfic or something about, you know, once the news got out um, and got to back to their home world. You know, whether people who disliked, you know, if there are people who disliked this conflict disrupting life every five years, if they were like, you know, that's a good idea. And like, you know, were the women, the mothers who were sick of seeing all this fighting and, you know, especially if it's upped into killing, you know, sneaking around and dyeing all the sashes one color slowly to, to solve it. I would love to have seen some more for this uh, just wow. to see how that- it wound up affecting it. That is that that is looking rather more deeply into the green versus purple conflict than I believe. That no, was I had intended. that thought too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you want to be if you want to be really serious about it, the implication uh, that Babylon Five becomes a purple outpost. We're talking about season two point five of Babylon Five, in which a green Drazi war fleet 
repeatedly and futilely attacks the station. <laughs> well, I just wondered what happens if, you know, it's a port of call for lots of humans and aliens. What happens but not if Green Drazi. Yeah, what happens if a couple of Green Drazi need to make a stop off there on their way to Io? Like, uh-oh, they're going to get their booties kicked. Or, you know, unless that's, you know, Ivanova's point is, you know, have the security guards watch him and yank him to the side and, here, quick, die this. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, and, you and just, you know, keep keep going. Keep going with it. Um, you know, it's... It, it's silly. It's almost, I think it's almost a parody of other situations in other sci-fi shows and dealing with these alien conflicts as as the team tries to understand what's going on and, and, and find a peaceful solution. You know, the fact that JMS presents something that flat out can't be peaceful without trickery, without some kind of subterfuge. Um, so I, I think it works overall. As Ivanova tries to sort things out, you know, this is not something she necessarily is comfortable doing. She she is more comfortable running CNC. She is not as comfortable in trying to uh, work in diplomatic situations. But Sheridan needs her to do this. And she starts it. And of course, this, you know, gives Garibaldi the, the chance to to find his purpose again, which is, I think, the other reason that uh, the episode uh, got written that way, especially after they actually wrote the broken foot in because Claudia Christian had had an accident and was on a cast and hobbling around. Um, and so they had to write it in. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. As as slight, you know, as as light, I guess, as that subplot was, I do appreciate that it gave us some... I thought really good performance from Claudia Christian. I thought she was mm-hmm. great. And I, I liked watching Ivanova sort of <laughs> develop her diplomatic skills. And it also, you know, led to some good character development for Garibaldi as well. So so even though it's not maybe my favorite B-plot ever, I appreciate the uh, the what it gave to us. So JMS has introduced humor into his scripts before. In purple, I'm stunning. You know, that sort of thing. <laughs> but this episode is what... Some in the Doctor Who fan community would determine with ire and offense a romp. <laughs> um, so how is this humor pitched? I mean, um, it does not reward looking at it too deeply, right? I mean, the, if, if you look at the Drazi as being dumb enough to kill each other over a random drawing of a scarf, you know, that is kind of... Oh, it, that is almost like punching down in a way. On the other hand, it is funny. So at this point, does JMS do humor well? And did it fit in with the show so far? I mean, it's it's really playful up until the point that we get to Elric's warning to Londo at the end. I wonder if, if placement had something to do with why it graded on me a little bit. Because remember, I was sort of hoping for something more big and momentous. So I was thinking in these these grand sweeping you know universe terms. And then we get this. And I think if it was a a lighter episode that had something, it was hung on something differently. Maybe I wouldn't have have been digging for for that importance. And maybe if this episode had come, you know, say we had two or three other. Uh, sort of standalone episodes and then this one came after that when I was sort of primed for the standalone episode maybe I would have reacted to it a little bit better but the fact that I wanted something to be heavier made me look for the heaviness in this and I was less able to appreciate the lightness. I think that JMS is very capable of doing humor certainly quips and people you know saying a funny thing at the right moment. Uh, He has been able to do 
scenes that are funny. This may be sort of like the first time that a whole story arc, uh, or not a story arc, I'm sorry, a whole B-plot or a whole half of an episode is supposed to sort of be funny all the way through. Like I said, overall, it worked for me. So I, I think it can be done. Um, again, whether, you know, people are expecting, you know, now that things have gotten started in season two, for them to just keep going higher and higher without stopping. If that affects how Erica uh, reacted, um, how other people might react, uh, that's up to the viewer. Aside from the humor, this is not a subtly written episode at all. Did Sheridan really have to tell the camera that he's holding an orange blossom? No. Did Sheridan, <laughs> did Sheridan really have to read a monologue at the end, staring out that's into the, the window? Part, that's, the part, that's the part I meant to say no to. Actually, I appreciated that he said it was an orange blossom, because otherwise I would not have had any idea what it was. I was like, oh. Random flower. flower. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought it was a little lily of the valley or something, so I was, I was way off. Yeah. And I think uh, JMS in um, It's on the Lurker's Guide that uh, JMS answered uh, some criticisms about uh, Sheridan's closing remarks, trying to say he wasn't just monologuing. He was talking to the tech. It just, you know, the camera angle didn't show the tech he'd just spoken to a second ago. He's still having a conversation. Editing wise, I'm not sure that f- that is obvious enough. Uh, and JMS admitted that, you know, yeah, sometimes uh, sometimes the bear gets you and you don't get the bear. Um, but yeah, I don't I, care if he, I don't care if he was talking to a tech, it sounded monologue and it just mm-hmm. did not sound like natural speech. So I still no. give it a thumbs down. It, it definitely didn't sound like the character that we've come to know in the previous two episodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, real quick, a couple more things before we jump into spoiler space. Uh, Garibaldi, some forced humor with Lou in a scene that I couldn't tell was directed awkwardly or it was intended to be awkward because uh, Garibaldi is just trying too hard. With him playing with his gun and not trusting Sheridan, he's in a pretty dark place. Aside from the fact that he's looking really darn healthy, except for that one little spot on his back where he was supposedly shot, and I could have sworn that he got shot a little higher than that. But anyway, (laughs) um, how good is this episode for Garibaldi? I think it's kind of a necessary episode somewhat to address because uh, Garibaldi's had... Uh, there have been hints in previous episodes that Garibaldi is really, really kicking himself. How could he miss this? How could he miss Jack not being part of his team? How, you know, having successfully stopped a presidential attack once back in Survivors, you know, this time he didn't. He he was in a position, he was trying to do so, and he failed. And this is the kind of character that takes failure really, really hard. I mean, that's part of the reason um, that, you know, drives the past alcoholism, that he failed to save his friend uh, back on Mars. And that's what got him started into the bottle. So I think you needed him to address this. And then something gets presented to him to wake him up again, to to help shake him out of it. The fact that none of his um, folks uh, Lou and none of the people in the squad even think to check whether Ivanova really sent the message or not since they didn't speak to her. You know, and, and Garibaldi realizes, you know, this shows him that, yes, I've still got a purpose. Yes, I can still do things. I think it was a necessary and I think it was pretty well done overall. It wasn't a, the key point of this episode. It was just sort of there woven into the other plot lines. So it worked very well for me. I also do like the way that he expresses his suspicions of Sheridan to Franklin, and in so doing, giving us suspicious fans who might be watching this for the first time, uh, 
Ooh, is is Sheridan actually a mole like some of these other characters that we've run into? Is he going mm-hmm. to turn out to be a bad guy? Is Sinclair going to come back uh, to rescue the station? Uh, you know, just opening up these moments of doubt into the status of, of a character, as Jakar said way back in the beginning. No one no, here. No one here is exactly, exactly what, what they, they seem. seem. Yeah. Um, so I do like that uh, Garibaldi, an, an inherently suspicious guy, is suspicious of the new guy, as many fans probably were at the time. Yeah, I I, I like that, that Garibaldi is suspicious, but that scene, that first scene, just didn't really play out very smoothly for me because it had it had like a hint of that exposition dumpy sort ofness that mm-hmm. we had quite often from Garibaldi in, in season one, uh, where... He, Yes, he's expressing something that he truly feels, but it just comes off as if he's saying it for the benefit of the audience as opposed to the benefit of the person he's talking to on screen. So I like I like the I like it in theory, but in pra- in practice, it just didn't come out quite as smoothly as, as I was hoping. But for the rest of the, the episode, I really did think that um, Jerry Doyle's performance was really good. And I mm-hmm. liked seeing Garibaldi kind of go through this inner conflict again. I was a little surprised that they didn't have, you know, the uh, they didn't jump back to the bottle again and have him think about drinking. But I was kind of pleased with that because, you know, we saw that play out. We saw that mm-hmm. happen. And this time, you know, it's 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 different and perhaps something that, that goes a little bit deeper because, yes, the inability to, to save a friend is a, a terrible thing. But in this case, it's like everything that he has done since then has been to build this role as the security chief. And, and he felt that he was damn good at it. And then he misses something really big and not only, you know, gets himself shot and fails, but then the president dies as well. He thinks as a result, although timing wise, I don't know that any but he could have done anything at that point. Right. Um, so he, so so going to this, you know, perhaps even darker place where he's playing with his PPG, um, I I thought that that made sense for the character, and and I really liked watching his his struggle sort of play out here. I also really liked how Sheridan just sort of matter of factly, subtly slides the PPG back into its holster and then continues talking. <laughs> that scene, I, I really liked. Mm-hmm. I really liked that. Um, he didn't make a big deal out of anything. He was just sort of like, you know, here's the deal. I think that you are a valuable person and, you know, I want to, to have you back. And and then just he gets the opportunity to find out that value for himself. And and I really, I, I liked that. It was, it was very much a show don't tell sort of an episode where we actually get to see why Garibaldi has changed his mind and made the decision. It's not like suddenly he comes back to work and then afterwards he sits down and has a glass of water with somebody and says, oh, I decided to come back because I realized this, this, mm-hmm. this. You know, we get a little bit of that, but we get to see it happen first. It's show don't tell with regard to Garibaldi. It's tell not show with a lot of other parts of this episode i think yes fair enough (laughs) so i think we have sort of a consensus about the episode being pleasant enough uh having some good moments but it could have been stronger and i'm wondering if that's uh in the writing or the direction this is mike vihar's first episode of babylon 5 he goes on to do 14 of them plus three babylon 5 tv movies Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, Jeremiah. And he's got a career that goes all the way back to Fantasy Island. Um, I'm wondering, despite his background, do some newcomer jitters show? Or <laughs> is, is this more of an issue of uh, scripting than direction? You know, it's funny you should mention that because Stephen adored this episode he loved it specifically because of the direction he noticed the direction he had to look up the director while the show was still in progress because he was so 
overawed and amazed at how well it was put together. He said, you know, that when this ended, I asked him, you know, how, how did you like it? He said, I, you know, I, I really liked it. It was it was completely throwaway, but extremely well put together. Uh, and it's by my new favorite director of Babylon 5. <laughs> so he was so excited to see that there are 13 more plus the movies coming from this guy. He was just, you know, because he said everything was very tight. One scene ended. Boom, we moved on. There was no waffling. Um, you know, and then he turns to me and he said, it's not all about the writing you see <laughs> yes, <laughs> but he liked the he liked the camera work as well there were a lot of a uh, lot of camera motion and you know scenes that followed the ivanova um you know into the whole the um into the drazi stronghold and stuff as one continuous camera camera move until she got in there and started talking and and uh, so from a, a technical standpoint this apparently was just like butter yeah, I think, it, and that may be one of the reasons that it holds up in spite of the the slightness of the storytelling itself, because there were so many moments when I noted down things like the actor who's not talking, like when Veer is not talking and Rifa and Londo are beginning their, their plots, um, just the look on Veer's face as he reacts to this. Yes. Uh, Stephen first did such a good job. I made the same notation about Jerry Doyle in another scene where he's the one doing the listening instead of the talking in that epi- in that scene. And it just and everything is spot on. Noticing some of the the technical improvements as well, I think we have another one of those really wide shots of share at the towards the beginning Sheridan and Avada standing in an empty uh, assembly hall or something looked really well put together, um, and all the different Drazi. I mean, they had like what twelve, fifteen different actors and makeup, and everybody's makeup was individual. You know, mm-hmm. it's like you could see different people. Different, you know, different members of this race. So just, you know, all of these technical things, I think, help uh, bolster the episode compared to uh, how slight it may feel in the writing. Even the lighting was good. You know, you get the the scene in Garibaldi's quarters where he's, you know, thinking dark thoughts and you have some really nice shadows on his face. Like the lighting is just excellent in that scene. You really get what they have sort of done with the lighting. That's a perfect example of it for for season two, because it's not like it's... it's brighter, but also darker. So, you know, you get to see more of what's behind him and then the shadow is much starker. It's, it's really nice. Yeah. Even the Drazi brawls are kind of neat. I love how when um, after Ivanova puts the scarf on the other guy's scarf and one of the guys in the back just gets so mad that he just runs over the tabletops and launches himself. <laughs> it's just it's just nuts. Mm hmm. Um, so uh, last couple of points, and then we really need to get into the spoiler space. Veer, he's developing quite a bit. Uh, Indeed. I, 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 he, he's, he's developing a bit of a backbone and a bit of a presence, and I like that. And mm-hmm. Elric, Michael Ansara, the late Michael Ansara, better known to many of our younger listeners as the voice of Mr. Freeze in all of the Batman the Animated Series stuff, but a long, distinguished career – I love his voice. I love his attitude. He is he's not a twee uh, Gandalf type. He actually he 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 ha- he has contempt for Londo and to a lesser extent Veer. Um he he he's got attitude and presence and he's not afraid to show it. Um for a guy walking around in a cape and glittery rhinestones on his uh, <laughs> shirt, um he's got some swagger to him. I really like this character. 
Yeah, I thought he was great. And I, I thought I had recognized him from somewhere, but I went back through his insanely long IMDb page and uh, realized I must have just seen him in enough things that his face kind of seemed a little bit familiar because I, I am not familiar with the Batman stuff. So I just I just thought he was great. Everything you said, I completely agree with. Yeah, he's been a Klingon in multiple generations of Star Trek shows and um, uh, just just a, a really, really stellar acting pedigree. So great, mm-hmm. great character. Glad, glad that we had him in this episode. Any final thoughts before we jump? I just want to say that you know, it was nice to see Lou, Lou Welch. Yeah. And you're right that that scene played out a little bit um, sort of uncomfortable, but I think I, I got the impression that was on purpose because Garibaldi was kind of not feeling himself, but you know, he even had a, a credit at the beginning and Stephen was just like, good old Lou Welch gets an effing credit. <laughs> he didn't say effing. Um, but he was like, good for Lou. <laughs> like, that's, that's, yeah. that's sweet. Yeah. I think that this episode does take the opportunity to continue with smaller references to, to uphold continuity. Uh, Lou Welch showing up again. Um, Sheridan's obsession with oranges continues, you know, talking about, mm-hmm. you know, f- having the fresh orange juice for Ivanova. Uh, we get our mention of Spoo with uh, Londo freaking out over the fact that he's now m- the majority shareholder of a Spoo farm. Uh, we haven't heard from, we haven't heard about Spoo since like midnight on the firing line, I don't think. I can, can I just say that uh, these techno mages may look all hoity-toity, but they are pranksters like folks hanging out on 4chan. You know, they are yeah. just—they're—they're just—they're—they're ju- they're just—they're just hackers. They're nerds. They're—they're they're nerds who are cosplaying. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But yeah, so I—I I feel there's a lot of little things like that that go together into this episode to to help bolster it. And with that, we're going to prepare our jump engines to go through the jump gate and uh, go into spoiler territory. But next time when we return to your airwaves, not that these are airwaves, it's all on wires and a series of internet tubes, we will be watching the episode A Distant Star, the fourth episode of the second season of the five-year saga that is Babylon 5. More episodes Past episodes of the Audio Guide to Babylon 5 are at b5audioguide.com, and we are also on Tumblr and Twitter if you go to B5 Audio Guide. And with that, thanks for listening. If you're departing now, we're going off to the rim, well, into spoiler space. Welcome back, everybody. It was a kind of a season one-like episode, but it wasn't exactly throwaway, shall we say? Mm-hmm. Not at all. No, although I, I now that I can say this, I felt very restrained in the uh, in the other section. Mm-hmm. Um, the title of this episode was very problematic for me because, you know, as I've said before, I never remember what happened in, mm-hmm. in these stories based on the titles. I'm terrible with titles. And I didn't remember what came next. And I saw the title of this one, The Geometry of Shadows. And now, you know, since I have seen the rest of the show, I know that shadows is a really big deal word. So I was expecting, I think one of the big reasons I was expecting something more momentous is because because of the title. So I couldn't complain about that in the first section without being completely spoilery. But I think that is where my my expectation came from. And, you know, silly me for trusting a title of Babylon 5 to mean anything. <laughs> I had the exact same 
kind of reaction. Uh, Chip reminded me this was Lord Reefa's first episode. And so I was just like, you know, oh, yeah, things are kicking into gear. And then we hit the the Drazi subplot. And I'm like, wait, that's now? And Chip's like, yeah, that's now. I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, so JMS was apparently playing with the Technomage side with, you know, the idea of geometry, math and equations with mysticism, shadows, kind of a poor choice on his part, I think, in, in retrospect, again, because as we learn throughout this season, shadows is a really loaded word. I mean, so. unless he was looking ahead and named it this way so that you could look at it in retrospect and, you know, it's it's sort of the geometry of shadows like this. This is the, the shapes that are being created in this episode, you know, but Londo talking to Lord Rifa and agreeing to, to this. Um, these sorts of things are are coming together to create a stronger foothold for the shadows. You could kind of retcon it a little bit that way, but coming into it from this side, I was just shaking my head like, oh, yeah. darn it. And, and well, there is the fact that the Technobages apparently are running away from what they see is the growing, you know, the growing darkness is coming back and they're, they're out of here. So, you know, they are running away from the shadows. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, so I mean, it it does connect somewhat, but like you said, if you're if you're watching again and hadn't watched in a while, uh, that that title could definitely be a bit of a letdown. Yeah. So momentousness of the episode, notwithstanding, uh, this is the first appearance of one of the best supporting characters in the entire series, uh, Lord Rifa, played by William Forward. Mm-hmm. I love <laughs> this guy. He's so he, he's he's so good in the role, um, and and this is just a little thing. He's got a different accent from Londo, but is particularly with the Centauri, uh, they made a point of giving all the different Centauri characters different accents. Like mm-hmm. you know, most humans don't speak with the same accent and all this stuff. But mm-hmm. um, he is he's just so so slimy and confident and conniving, um, and he just. I, I, I like the way that uh, they both have this sort of forced laugh after uh, Londo says that, you know, I'm sure you would like to know how I did it, and I'm not going to tell you. And they both have the the, the evil background supervillain <laughs> laugh. But yeah. I'm glad that we have gotten to Lord Rifa because he's a great character. He is. I love the way he carries himself. He is a politician and he but he is a politician in the way you would expect it to be in in an empire like this and it's just he he has that certain something about him that just makes him feel like the personification of the centauri government and the uh, you know the machinations that are going on in the background it's just like he is he is it and i mean maybe all of that isn't quite clear in this very first episode but even even this the way he carries himself i think is mm-hmm. is a, a perfect start to what becomes an awesome awesome character yeah road. and between yeah. rifa and elric Londo is sort of in the shadow of two people who are more experienced in the ways of power and are sort of tougher. Londo is not tough in this episode, but I think it's interesting to contrast him to these two characters and to look ahead to where Londo is going to be at the end of the season when the Narn Centauri War is at an end and Londo throws Jakar out of council and things like that. You know, Londo is going to be up to that level compared to Rifa and Elric someday. But it's interesting to see that he's not quite that competent yet. Yeah, I think um, it's it's a good introduction to the character. Definitely 
Uh, this was a character that I, I loved to hate as, as we went on. And um, I think that his demise is just one of the, one of the highlights of, of the entire uh, arc, uh, the way that that is staged and played. But I also, right away, like you said, you know, slimy politician, smarmy. Uh, he's too important to even think about Veer's presence. Veer's totally invisible to, to him, the first part of that conversation, until he starts saying something that's going to be treasonous. And that's when he's like, oh, you know, and, and he pulls back and Londo is just like, oh, that's Veer. He, he won't say anything. Um, and then we get that awesome look from Veer, like the yeah. look on his face. I have yes. seen the uh, the 1980s movie, The Dream Team, which Stephen First is in so many times. Like that look was so much like his character from The Dream Team. Huh. This, this guy who didn't speak at all, but all of his communication was on his face. It was just mm-hmm. oh, priceless. Yeah. And, you know, and as part of this general storyline, of course, you know, saying, you know, we're seeing more of Veer, you know, we see the the first hints of just how brave he can be if he has to be, you know, as he stands up, as this Technomage illusion comes at him, and he just sort of stands there, it's like, you know, and and keeps, you know, insisting on his role. um, That, you know, like Chip said, in the uh, pre spoiler space, you know, we're starting to see his backbone. And that that's only going to get bigger as as things go on. Yeah, he's he's going to be emperor someday. And I like that, uh, you know, when we first got introduced to Veer and Lanier, they were both sort of naive uh, in their in their own way and kind of sort of weak in, in, in a certain way. And as the story has progressed and they've gotten more settled into their uh, jobs at on Babylon 5 they have both become stronger characters. And I think it's just a natural uh, growth for these characters. Contrast that to Natath, who in the first season was from day one when she walks on, uh, she's she's way confident. She's way, you know, she she could she could do Jakar's job for him. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, once it once it, once they get once they got rid of Kodath, who would have been like the third amigo, uh, the third hapless <laughs> The, her, the third hapless attache, uh, Veer and Lanier are growing to the point where uh, Natoth, as played by Julie Caitlin Brown, uh, got to. So, yay for Veer. Do either of you have any other spoilery thoughts before I go into a bit of a monologue about the Technomages? I was just going to say just a couple of lines that I noticed, um, specifically like Elric says to Londo, just, you know, the rest of your life paying for your mistakes yep. and, you know, how he's touched by darkness. I always tend to notice the the sort of script based nods to the future more than more than anything else. Um, and, uh, you know, somebody, the there's a storm coming, a black and terrible storm. So all that kind of portentous dialogue is, is the stuff mm-hmm. that stood out for me in this episode. It gave me gave me a little bit of a shiver. And then the other more major thing that I noticed is from from watching all the way through, Garibaldi has quite a lot of character change throughout the, the course of, of this show. And I guess I felt like maybe this was the very first time that we see the true darkness, because we got a little bit of it with his drinking before, but I, I felt maybe this is the, his personality change sort of starts here when he starts second guessing everything that he really feels certain of. And, you know, maybe it's, it's, it's just a little bit, a, a little bit of a nudge that Sycor has to give him down the road to kind of get him to, to sort of go off the deep end. But maybe that's me reading too much. No, no, it. no, you're not. You're totally not. Because, um, you know, so in this episode, uh, Garibaldi, describes his suspicions of Sheridan. And then uh, in the fourth season, uh, we have the scene between Alfred Bester and 
a psychop played by Harlan Ellison. <laughs> uh, That's right. Uh, where they talk about enhancing Garibaldi's natural suspicious nature. So, you know, no, no, this is this is good. I don't know that it was necessarily intentionally done this way, but if you mm-hmm. know your characters when you're writing the story, you know, this is how Garibaldi would be. And this is the gateway to how Garibaldi will become once uh, Psychor is done playing in his head. So yeah, I think you're right on the money, Erica. Hooray. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a couple of things I wanted to mention in line with uh, those those lines that make you think and, you know, sort of signal a lot of the story. We have the Technomage talking about, you know, this darkness happened a thousand years ago. And it just got me. I'm trying to remember how much of it was dialogue driven and how much of it was just me leaping on to that thousand years ago when, you know, a place like this, you know, what what would people back then think of, you know, a place like this? Well, you know what? They set a place like this back and they had to create and they had to show it off as religion and magic for people to buy into getting Babylon 4 gifted to them in that war. So I love that little bit of continuity, circular referencing, whatever you want to call it. The other thing that I thought about um, with Sheridan's character is I think, you know, he spends a lot of his screen time this episode talking to his colleagues about trust. He keeps insisting he trusts Ivanova to do what she needs to do to, to solve the Drazi problem. He trusts Garibaldi because Garibaldi knows the station like, you know, nobody else. And, you know, he needs that. I think this is Sheridan deliberately pushing things as we are going to find out in an episode or two. He had to determine who was loyal on the station. That was his one of the reasons he was assigned by the people who assigned him was to be that mole, but not because he's working against the station and Earth Force, but because he's trying to find out if anybody else is working against Earth Force. So I think that his push and his emphasis on trust, I think, has a bit of a purpose for that secondary job he's been given. Good point. Good yeah. point. All right, everybody, I need you all to fasten your seat belts. We're going to talk about Technomages a little bit. Uh, <laughs> here we go. Yeah, here we go. Uh, so Technomages are surprisingly important to the Babylon 5 sort of expanded universe and Babylon 5 fandom, despite the fact that this is the only time they are going to be seen in the entire five years of Babylon of, the, of Babylon 5 proper. We're going to get the um, the image of the great hand reaching out of the stars in a very few episodes, and we're going to have Ansara's wonderful line as part of the season five theme. But other than that, that's all we get of the Technomages in Babylon 5 proper. However, a Technomage is a regular on the Babylon 5 sequel series, Crusade. Galen also appears in the telemovies A Call to Arms and B5 The Lost Tales, which I confess Shannon and I have still yet to actually see that one. <gasps> that may be I'm a special... I've- I'm just surprised I've seen something that you guys haven't. Yeah, well. tell me. Yeah, that, that's that's you're 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 one up on us, and you're going to get some. We're, oh, we're going to get some emails about that. Maybe I'm like statement. one half up on you. <laughs> <laughs> the Technomages also appear in Book One of the Centauri Prime trilogy of novels by Peter David. That extends that that trilogy of novels really extends the Babylon Five storyline and wraps up several loose ends that were left when. Crusade didn't get made, and um, 
and things like that. Um, and there is a full-on Technomage trilogy written by Gene Cavalos, who also wrote the uh, Shadow story um, in the previous run of novels, uh, the one that uh, takes a look at what happened to Anna Sheridan and Morden on Zahadum. Technomages are basically cyborgs, as explained in the novels and glimpsed when we see implants in Galen's back during Crusade, and they are actually wearing technology that was created by the Shadows. And the first season finale of Crusade would have revealed that rogue elements in Earth Force were attempting to create their own technomages using shadow implants. And these sorts of notes and bits like that make me all the more annoyed that uh, the relationship between Babylonian Productions and TNT fell apart so spectacularly and that crusade came to nothing because I think that that would have been really cool. But instead, all we get is Elric and a couple of other guys waving their hands and doing and doing holograms in the air. But Technomages, they're actually really kind of important to the Babylon 5 universe. You just have to know where to look for them. Yeah, when that guy made the uh, the symbol in the air, Stephen was just like, F you. <laughs> like, what? He's like, that's what it says. It looks like it says, or maybe it was F off. I can't remember. I thought yeah. it was like uh, Jimmy Page's symbol from uh, Led Zeppelin. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I, I may be the voice of dissent here, but I, I'm somewhat glad that the, at least as far as Babylon 5 proper, that the Technomages are basically on stage long enough to give a warning and then they're off again because they could so easily have been yet another Deus Ex Machina opportunity the way that the machine, the great machine on Epsilon 3 is. Um, it's just so very tempting to pull them back to, to solve problems that couldn't be solved. Um, I like the idea of, of the Crusade storyline um, and uh, the tie-in media. I think that's a good place for the Technomages to mainly be is is in the is in the tie-ins in the novels and such. But like no, I said, that's com- that just me. I, I completely agree. Actually, I I think that I feel weird about the Technomages because yeah, they just they're so out there and powerful and, and weird. And I mean, you get Sheridan basically talking about Clark's Law, any science that's sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic. And I think that's exactly where the Technomages lie. And I think that's always a really tricky thing to bring into a science fiction show, especially when it's sort of cloaked in this, you know, religion and. It, you know, not exactly religion, but there's a lot of ceremony and stuff. Yeah, it's mysticism around it. It is. It's very, very much mm-hmm. mysticism, and I, I guess I just don't necessarily want to deal with you know, sort of parsing the mysticism versus the science, and and you know, it's just it's it's an easy out in a lot of ways. Definitely, you get the the possibility for Deus Ex Machina, as as Shannon said, but you also get just the the possibility for sort of. Even in a place where it's not saving the day, going you know way way out there with with what's going to happen technologically, and we already get some of that in Babylon Five. So I think that I think that what we've got is enough. So I'm happy with the Technomages just being a little bit of seasoning here and there. Yeah, I mean that was one of the criticisms of Crusade, and it's been long enough since I've seen Crusade that I'm not sure how deeply I recall it. But you know, you had your thief character and you had your wizard character, and it was almost like Dungeons mm-hmm. and Dragons in the Babylon Five universe. Um, so, (laughs) but that's way on down the road. We haven't even talked about whether we're going to touch on crusade at all. We've got five seasons worth of proper Babylon five to get through before we get old. So (laughs) 
<laughs> so that's for another that's for another time. So that was the geometry of shadows. And next time, a distant star. Erica, the baton is yours. And until that time, this is Chip in Durham. Erica in Edmonton. And Shannon in Durham. And you have been listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5 and Green Rocks. Purple. (laughs) Quit it. (laughs) 